Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, a former Downing Street advisor on business and technology. Today's guest is one that I've been excited about for a very long time. She was brought up originally by Salima of KBox Global in our very last episode of Series 2. And we approached the end of Series 3 and we finally completed our Pass the Mic episode by bringing in Kelly from ZigZag. Now, Kelly has one of the most fascinating careers that I have ever seen on paper. It spans the US military to Harvard Business School to Germany and now finally to a UK startup called ZigZag, which is launching a crowdfunding campaign this week. If you've listened to the show, you will know what a powerful medium I think the audio can be and how it can almost take you to lands and places that you never realised was possible. But the audio sector has largely remained pretty undisrupted for a number of years. That being said, in the last couple, we've seen enormous, with more podcasts being launched than ever before, and with innovations like Times Radio as well. But the audiobook market is one that is resolutely held by Audible. And yet, it is a relatively simple proposition that they provide. One of the great things about books as well is that they can take you to a different place in a different world. But they partly do that through various maps and diagrams and explanations. And so that is what Kelly is setting out to do with ZigZag, is to revolutionise the audio book space by making it even more immersive than it's ever been before. So that you don't need to buy a book as well as pay for listening to it. As I say, they are currently undergoing a public crowdfunding campaign. So you can check out more on the Cedars website about them. But I should just put the disclaimer that this podcast does not provide investment advice. But before this episode starts, a big thank you to our series partners, Octopus. Octopus was founded in 2000 by Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, who sat in a living room using the yellow pages to get their first clients. Octopus now has 10 billion under management and employ over 750 people with a mission to invest in the people, the ideas and industries that will help change the world. Many companies like to say they back entrepreneurs, but Octopus really put their money where their mouth is. And throughout this series, we'll be hearing more about where they are backing the next generation of great entrepreneurs. Kelly, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us, how did you come up with the idea of ZigZag? Well, I was sitting on the tube and I didn't have any Wi-Fi and I was listening to Hans Rosling's Factfulness, which is, as you know, is a book that's designed to use infographics to change people's perceptions of the world and the state of the world. And the narrator comes across and tells me that in order to see all these brilliant infographics that are kind of core to the story, I have to download a PDF from a desktop website. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> like, this is 2018. You know, it should be, it should be better than this. Uh, and, you know, I used to listen to um, audiobooks in Germany in the late 90s. And it just felt like in 20 years, it really hasn't moved on. It's digital, but it's still very books on tape. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because books are a bit like great political speeches um, can often set out to change your mind 
right? And that's that's the real power of a, a kind of speech or, or a book is where it makes you think in a, in a different way. And one of the things I reflected on when I was in number 10, that the political speech is largely exactly the same as what it was um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, almost a century ago. And when you look at the innovation of places like, you know, the TED Talks and so on, and the way that people use graphs and illustrations and other videos to make their case, I've often thought there could be be disruption in that space as well, but it'd be a pretty bold political leader to make that make that change. How did you come up with the name Zigzag? And we should say Zigzag <laughs> at this point, by the way. Zigzag is spelt with an X, two Xs. Yeah, X-I-G, X-I-G, yes. I mean, it was actually really difficult. So we didn't start out with that name. We We really brainstormed. And so you have to think about words that are kind of consumer friendly because we knew we were going to have a consumer proposition but also that have you know that are clear of trademark issues and that you can get the domain for and so I'd love to say that we set out with this really intentional you know oh it's a cross between an audiobook and an ebook so you zig and zag through it but that's that's not really what happened it was much more you know let's find something that we could trademark and something where we can get the domain for and then and then we'll go from there. And it, it just really worked out. We're really pleased with uh, with the brand name, I think. Uh, well, I, I think it's, it's brilliant. And talk us through the the actual model of it. So, you know, we're, we're speaking to people's ears now. So chances are they're probably engaged with audiobooks yeah, yeah. as as well. Um, explain to us how somebody can use ZigZag and how it can improve their book listening experience. Cool. Yeah, so our app's live on Android and iOS at the moment. And we have about 90% of the Sunday Times bestseller list. In terms of the content, we have 30,000 titles. So you go, and just like any bookshop, you can browse for the the titles that you want to listen to. Um, And we have this new concept, which we call the X-Book, where it takes human voice narrated audiobooks and and indexes them to the e-book at scale to create this richer experience um, so that as an audiobook listener, you're not missing out on, you know, the illustrations, the ability to see the text, even to just understand dialogue, to look up words or character names you don't understand, to actually just navigate more easily through the audiobook, because it's so easy to get lost and it's so hard to find your place. And then we're trying to make it more social as well. So we have, um, you know, quote and share capabilities. So you can take a quote that's then transcribed into an audio into text and so you can either share the audio quote or you can share the text on social media so it's just all about trying to enrich an experience that has been you know we feel quite neglected for some time so a i've never been interviewed on this podcast as it's my (laughs) podcast so i've never been asked what my favorite book is um but one of my guilty pleasures is listening to comedians um biographies because i effectively feel like you're buying a six eight hour stand-up <laughs> set and i also think of them uh sitting in a podcast studio like like we are now with themselves and, and probably finding it um quite awkward but one <laughs> one of the challenges that i i find with those is as funny as i do and i i genuinely have listened to like four in the last six weeks because all these comedians have been writing them during lockdown but one of the challenges obviously they they, they often include funny pictures and so on and that um, you know, isn't something that you get with Audible and so on. So just, but but explain to us the how a user um, gets that option to do it. Then do they look it up on their 
their phone effectively. Yeah, we have a refer to text button. So you're just listening and you're just looking at the, you know, the core listening screen. And there are, you know, kind of four options there. You can refer to the text, you can search, you can quote. Uh, and I think you might be able to um, gift at that point or share with someone else. And again, we're trying to make it more social and make it more functional. Um, and so it's just really easy. So instantly you're taken to the text itself. And I was saying, you know, I was listening to Charles Spencer's The White Ship, which is like this kind of ancient history about Henry I and Henry II. And um, it was really interesting to, uh, you know, the narrator is coming across with these French names <laughs> and I can't understand French. And so trying to figure out what the word is that he's saying, you know, it's a quick flip to the page. And you look and you think, oh, men is Maine, you know, pronounced like the mm. state in, or, you know, uh, it's spelled like the state in America. So I can understand that. So whenever that's referred to again, I have that kind of cognitive understanding in my in my head. And so for me, it just helps me, I think, understand the books better, which then helps drive my reading efficiency or my or, you know, people would say I'm not really reading but my listening efficiency. Uh, and I think I'm getting the same benefits as reading and I'm just I'm just consuming more books. So that to me is a real benefit. You, you mentioned on your platform that on ZigZag that uh, the average reader is getting through 1.3 books a month compared to Audible, of course, which is a very kind of set. Uh, you know, you get one book per month. Um, yeah. I just thought it was fascinating to sh- you know, it, it driving more. You know, I'm sure we all have we all like reading, uh, but we all have a bit of a challenge of kind of keeping it going. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the other thing that we felt was that um, the Audible model of one book per month was unfair for a few reasons. One was if I did consume more, I was held back and I had to wait till the next month or then I had to pay even when I didn't have time to listen. And so for me, it just felt like it wasn't a very consumer-centric pricing model. So our pricing model is designed to drive to drive consumption. So we make it super simple for people to um, purchase. It's in-app purchase. And then we start at the same price point as the Audible subscription, but we give people benefits, you know, discounts for every after every five full price books that they buy. And so then what we're trying to encourage people, you know, when you're ready to listen, listen. We don't make you pay for just being on the platform. And then we'll reward you for consuming more. And so, yeah, the number is actually 1.92 books per month on average over the last three months versus Audible. So we're proving that the Audible subscription model is actually demand constraining. And Mm. that's quite exciting because we're trying to, you know, sell more books for people and, and get people to enjoy more books on behalf of publishers and authors, obviously, but also, you know, consumers. If you want to check out ZigZag, then just go to zigzag.co.uk forward slash Jimmy and you can download it there. Talk us through the model a bit more in terms of how it how it works, right? So like we were saying there, Audible, flat rate, um, you know, $8.99 a month or whatever. Um, you are trying to be more innovative with that and the model that you take forward. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so the, our, our prices start at seven seven pounds ninety nine. We have a bunch of titles that are always available at three ninety nine because we're trying to make it more accessible. We really believe that there's an accessibility problem with books, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't just be rich people that get to listen. So um, we start at seven ninety nine. After every five books, the price goes down by a pound. So first five books will be all seven ninety nine, and then the next five books are six ninety nine. The books after that are $5.99 until you get to 20 books. If you're if you're consuming over 20 books a year, you, you pay three $3.99 for each book. 
And then that re- resets annually. Obviously, we're trying to you know pay authors, and na- narrators, and publishers fairly for their yeah. work. So obviously, we need to make enough money to be able to compensate them. But we think actually, it's a you know this we're we're trying to balance that tension between making sure creatives are getting paid fairly for their work, as well as making sure it's really accessible for consumers. And that's a tricky challenge. Yeah, um, it is, and there there is so much kind of such a phrase used often, but disruption happening kind of in publishing and you know we recently had um a nft specialist on talking about kind of disruption in the art market and so on and the publishing industry as well has been a industry which is you know gated by a certain type of community and quite impregnable for a lot of people and it's one of the exciting things that i really see about the podcast world but also you know publishing more more generally is that actually we are it does allow entry for much more people to do it you know you don't need to commit to a book run of 20,000 copies anymore you know it's much more you know flexible and that's you know that can be a really democratizing feature for people which is one of the things that I get so excited about what you're what you're building with zigzag and talk to us a little bit about the the crowdfunding campaign how how that's been going in terms of the preparation for it and uh, yeah you launched it this week yeah. Um, well, it's super exciting because it allows us to engage our listeners and our network and our friends and family in, you know, supporting our success and, and getting people engaged in what we're doing. And so, it's a, again, it's a fantastic innovation that, you know, didn't exist maybe 10 years ago. But it really does, I think, democratize investing, especially in early stage companies. And, you know, it, it, I think what we find is that you really get super engaged fans. And that's the real benefit, for, especially for consumer brands. We do really well on, on crowdfunding platforms because there are people that actually want to try your product as well as help yeah. you sell it. And I think that is just, it's super and it's really powerful. And so you're, you're live on Cedars at the moment. So, I mean, talk us through the, the valuations and, and a bit of a 101 explainer on crowdfunding and how that, that works um, for people because... It'd be great to hear your thoughts on it. I should just say I'm no expert here. Yeah. <laughs> this is my first time. So, um, but yeah, so we um, we launch on on Cedars, and people can buy as little as you know one share, which will be I think less than ten pounds for us. And um, and yeah, they're buying a part of our company, and in exchange, you know, they get some you know EIS tax breaks, uh, which offers both an income tax relief as well as capital gains relief if you you know if you meet some uh, criteria around how how long you hold the the shares for and it's all done through the platform so it's super simple people can you know literally invest with credit cards and it's just again it's it's allowing people to learn about you know new companies that are coming out it's allowing companies to access new users and fans and investors and it really is kind of democratizing almost um you know cooperatizing in yeah. some ways ownership and and you know we think you know that's kind of the the side we're on we're, we've always been on the side of the customer and on the side of the little guy obviously yeah. we're taking on amazon so <laughs> i think we're on the side of the little guy yeah david versus the uh goliath <laughs> exactly. yeah completely and w- why go the crowdfunding um route because obviously it's such a marker for ambitious startups to kind of raise the first bit of capital and so on. Why have you chosen the crowdfunding route? Um, 
Well, we, I think it's because it allows you to do two things at once. So it really does allow you to engage new new users. There's a, a ton of noise that is built around these platforms that allows people to find you in a way that you know you might not find them today. So there's a customer acquisition side of it. Yep. And then there's the investment side of it. And again, that sort of democratization side of the investment, whereas we would love for our customers to be part owners in what we're doing. Because, you know, from the start, they've believed in what we're doing because they're on the platform, they're buying books from us. So it feels like a bit of a reward, like we would love to reward them with our success. And it's just real, you know. It's it's a super exciting time to to be doing it. So it's it's quite trendy as well. And build that trust, right? Like it's quite. Um, yeah, we were talking about it beforehand, and yeah, it's been a challenge trying to get people to kind of partner and back on the podcast. Um, and it's it's because it's a, it's a new category and similar to kind of audio books. It's a lot harder for some people to kind of come and support it because you know the analytics aren't as strong around it and so on. And you know it's it's been a, a challenge for that how do you kind of harness and, and develop that that trust with with the listener i think you know the messages that you go out to market with are super important to get right and so we you know we went out with no subscription audiobooks at the start because we didn't have all the functionality that we were trying that we had in our head that we were going to build and we didn't have the contracts that would allow us to do everything that we wanted to do so you know, sometimes you go with what you've got. And, yeah. and so you, you, so we went out with what we had with the expectation that we could build on that. And then we built on it. And then we could tell a story about Xbooks. And then we could tell a story about you can listen and read and, you know, look at all these cool features you can share on social media. So it's it's just layering on these these messages and trying to do it in a really human way that allows people to um, to connect with us. Because it's, you know, it really is about some kind of human connection that's what we believe we offer versus big tech and so that has to that personality really has to flow through you know that's about copywriting it's about imagery um it's about being in the right places and targeting the right people and yeah it's it's a bit of an art and a science as well but and as i said i think karen who 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 does this for us is really really amazing at getting that right and and then i think once they're on the platform treating them with respect and fairness and um and, you know, being accommodating of their needs when, when we're really sort of still a team of kind of four people. Uh, how do you re- be responsive when somebody's got an issue? How do you make it right as quickly as you can when something goes wrong? You know, those are the things that I think then really, really builds trust. And, and I think we see that in some of the, the people that have registered for our crowdfund. You know, I, if, I know, if I know your email address, it's because you've had an issue. And, and I think... Um, so to see then and recognize some of our customers on there was really, um, really just like humbling and exciting. And um, we're just really grateful for the, the awesome customers we have. It's one of the stories that um, Ben Francis talks about the first episode of this series. And he uh, you know, founded Gymshark, billion pound company now, uber successful. But he talks about one of the first Black Fridays they had and basically all the system broke because of the demand. Nice problem to be in perhaps but he knew that he was in danger of losing customers for an entire lifetime there so he hand wrote them all a kind of a letter and so on and that you know speaks a lot about him and, and partly why the company's been um so successful is an extraordinary story of conviction there that you were saying right at the outset of kind of like you know going out on a bit of a limb you know we've, we've barely a product there at that, <laughs> at that stage um how 
Do you think as an entrepreneur you you need that sense of conviction and, and proving doubters wrong? Because one of the big questions that like the startup pitches that I see and so on most commonly asked is like, well, what if you know Google or Facebook or Amazon decide to do this? And when it comes to you, it's like they're already doing it. <laughs> like, like it's even sort of. Do you think you, yeah, have to enjoy that almost kind of like sadist kind of mentality of proving <laughs> doubt is wrong? Maybe there's a bit of that in me. I mean, um, I do just love a challenge, and and I, I actually, I, you know, to me, it's much more about this doesn't work, and I know that I know somebody who can fix it, and it's and it's not me; it's my co-founder who's amazing, <laughs> but. I know we can build something better and the, con the consumer deserves something better. So for me, it's always about, well, w we know that, that, that there needs to be something better in this market. And if we can just build it, we think people will come. Um, yeah. But it might be that, yeah, we're <laughs> freedom fighters or, <laughs> you know, the heroic journey kind of, um, you know, from, from, from literature, you know, that, that's maybe, maybe what we're all about. And that segues quite nicely into the start of your kind of career because uh, you were a captain in the U.S. Army. So that's a first for the show <laughs> um, in terms of we haven't had that uh, before. And obviously the U.S. military probably, you know, one of the most finely tuned organizations in the world. It must be quite a oh, – you, you, you laugh at that. But that is the that's the perception anyway. Um, most well funded, and, yeah. Most all right, yeah, all right. <laughs> More well funded than a startup. That's um, that's for sure. Would love to kind of hear your reflections on that because we have a lot of people that listen um, in the military and so on. So it'd be, be great to kind of hear about your your journey for all that. But 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 take us right back to the beginning and and starting in the U.S. Army. Yeah. So I at seventeen, I decided to go to West Point. Um, and I did it really, you know, my, my dad was a, which a, is like the San Santos kind of equivalent. It's yeah, it's, just, it's sort of similar, but it's different in the sense it's a, it's a four year engineering university, uh, that was set up in like the early 1800s to educate and train the, the leaders of the nation. I mean that, you know, when everyone was expected to kind of join the the army or the military. It's about um, as old as the United States. Then, <laughs> it's, it's old for us. It's old for us. <laughs> And um, yeah, so I, so my dad had been, uh, you know, he retired as a colonel in the, in the, the equivalent of the territorial army in the U.S., like the army reserves. So I had had some exposure to the military, but I had never, you know, we didn't travel around the world. You know, we weren't stationed in far flung places. You know, we, we were hometown, like one single hometown. I, I lived in basically one house my entire life. But there was this independence in me. That was, I want to be independent from my, my parents, and I want to pay my own way to university. And that's not easy to do in the U.S., yeah. especially with my only kind of like average <laughs> sports skills. <laughs> uh, and so, and I didn't have a ton of people advising me, or, you know, around where to go and where to study mm. and what the options were. But I did have, you know, the, the kind of concept of the military. And so... And when I went to West Point, I just fell in love with it. It's like our Cambridge. It's that it's that stunning a place to be. It's right up an hour north of New York City on the Hudson River. And I, I'd say I, I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into when I when I got there. But you know, you go, you're you're paid for four years to go to university, which is quite unusual. And then you give back five years of service plus, you know, three years inactive. Um, 
and and that was the time the time I had, and I thought I'd get some really good experience out of it. And it's a it's a big commitment to make at, at the start of your career, right? Yeah, absolutely. Big um, commitment to make at any point, frankly. Ten yeah, years. no, I mean exactly. It was basically like nine years of my life, um, but it just you know it just felt natural for me. I mean, as soon as I was there, and it was completely unnatural. Right? It's just a very strange place, especially for a woman. I think we were. I started at maybe 15% of the class and we, we, we graduated about 10%. Okay. And it, it was, yeah, it was just a very strange environment. But, you know, I did pretty well because I, I had been, I was quite sporty. So I could hang, you know, physically with the guys. And yeah, so to me, I saw it as a, a way to get a lot of experience really early on that would then set me up for a kind of business career. And that, that was how I thought about it. And I give back for my service and, and, and maybe get to do a bit of good as well. Um, but I absolutely loved it. I, I mean, it, you know, it was a very weird place, but in so many ways, I think it broadened my horizons. So when I got to West Point, it was the first time anyone told me that I could be a leader, you know, mm-hmm. and the whole concept of an ethos of West Point is like to educate and train leaders of the nation. And it was one of those places like, oh, I, I might actually be a leader. And, yeah. and like as a 17 year old girl, you have like kind of no confidence in yourself. And when somebody tells you that, you think, like, oh, OK, maybe I'll maybe I'll take this a bit seriously then. And, yeah. Um, Someone yeah. believing in you. Exactly. Yeah. So and it's, it's a, I mean, that's a big thing in the US, right? Like the 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 military is, you know, I've spent a bit of time in the US, as this is now at Stanford. But I've also traveled. I've done coast to coast across the states as well. And, and you know, particularly in the flyover states. <laughs> which you you learn when you go from coast to coast in a car why they're called the flyover states <laughs> it was one reflection but it's is yeah you know, when you're in these places the the military is held in such enormous regard when you're there that it's it's quite striking and, and one of the things i remember about the, the trump election was well the the reflections on the point that he hadn't been a serving politician or served in the military and it was just and the first president to become president about either of those things and I thought that was just quite remarkable the way that that was benchmarked in, in such a way because actually we do have quite a few senior um, politicians in the UK who've served in the military but it's not a bigger thing as it as it once was actually in the in the part of the 20th century but what what characteristics did did it teach you in those first kind of you know those formative years um, that have kind of led you into more of a business path since then? I think that the military gets a, a bad rap for being all command and control. And actually, one of the most interesting things I experienced was incredible level of empowerment at a very young age. You know, I, I knew nothing. I'd, you know, I'd been at West Point. I go out and I'm in a unit at 22 working with, a, um, you know, my platoon sergeant who's who's been in, you know, 20 years longer than I have and trying to get them to trust you and to then figure out together how you're going to take care of this unit of people. And it you, you don't have, everyone's not telling you how to answer these kind of personal issues and challenges that the, the soldiers are facing or the mission that you're facing. You're not going to have somebody telling you exactly what to do. You have to actually figure it out for yourself. So this kind of empowerment of small teams is one of the really, the most powerful things that I think um, you get out of the military experience, along with the ability to work in teams and the power of a of a, a shared sense of purpose in getting people to do what you need them to do. But I think that, that the empowerment thing is the one that I think throws people off the most because everyone believes that it's just, you know, you, you have to tell people what to do and they're just going to do it because they have to, like by law, <laughs> they have to follow your orders. But, you know, that works once 
Yeah. <laughs> and then it doesn't really work after that. So, um, so that I guess is one, it, it, that's probably the, the one thing that I take away quite a lot from, from the military, but you know, it was just, I was just given a lot of responsibility. I had some pretty awesome jobs at a very young age. Um, like I was running the biggest warehouse in the Bosnian theater. I was wow. 23 years old and, you know, and just trying to help people um, get through that time, you know, seven months living in a tent down there and people are missing their family away from home. Stuff's happening at home. You know, the the, the one thing that's cool about the the military is you just, it is actually the only social safety net we have in America. You know, there there is, yeah. it is the way people extract themselves from incredibly difficult situations. So you just have this incredible cross-section of America. It's incredibly diverse, socioeconomically diverse, ethnically diverse. You're being sent all over the world, so you're experiencing other cultures. I mean, it's it's super interesting um, view on American society that the way that you can get out of bad situations is, is actually having to join the army. But it was it tremendous, and I, it just opened my eyes to the, you know how diff, you know different people from different backgrounds were were, were you know and, and and how much privilege I had growing up. I suppose that's the other observation. Yeah, diversity has become like quite a sort of you know modern buzzword for business, etc. One of the institutions that's never had a problem with that is is the army, whether it be the the British Army or the U.S. Army. What do you think business can learn from that? Well. I wouldn't say they've never had any problems about it. I mean, I think oh, that, yeah. that I, I think they were absolutely leading the way on it. And I think it, you know, I was listening, there actually is a, a pretty good podcast somebody had me listen to, which talks about the leadership that the U.S. military took on segregation or desegregation following the Second World War because of the value that minority soldiers had in terms of the, you know, their contribution in, in the Second World War. And it was just like, we're just not going to stand for it. So everyone's going to be integrated. And by taking that kind of leadership stance, and, and I'm sure it wasn't very popular at the time, if you can think about the era that that was, yeah, yeah. was happening in, and they just, like, we're just going to do it. So it just talks about sometimes you have to do difficult things as a leader that are the right thing, that aren't necessarily popular, but but they're the right thing to do. And I, I think that is... Um, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of in, in, you know, having come from the army is that it is incredibly diverse, that you do value all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different contributions. And you really do see the power of an incredibly diverse organization, um, you know, achieving great things as a result of some of those really, really early decisions. Yeah. And then, so you did that period and you went on to McKinsey and you also went to uh, work in Germany a bit as well. So a very kind of global career that you've had as well. Um, you know, had Kelly, age 17, even heard of sort of McKinsey? Yeah. I didn't even have a passport. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's a classic, <laughs> that's a classic American, um, you know, joke about us. But I didn't have a passport. I, I'd been to Canada a few times, never anywhere else uh, yeah. besides maybe the Caribbean. But you could get there with just your parents' driver's license at the time. So, so my whole family didn't have passports until I was stationed in Germany or I was getting stationed in Germany in wow. sort of, I think, late 96, early 97. So, um, so yeah, it, was, it completely broadened my horizons. And, you know, it was the first time I think my parents had traveled overseas in, in so many ways, a, a kind of horizon-broadening experience. And, yeah. and I wouldn't, you know, no, and I didn't know anything about McKinsey until I got to business school. And I was one of those <laughs> like dumb army girls at business school. Like, 
everyone keeps using this word leverage in different ways and it's just like <laughs> terrifying. And, um, but yeah, so the smartest kids in my year, in my class, I felt like had come from McKinsey and I was like, oh, you know, yeah. I don't really feel like I fully understand everything that's going on here. So if I go there, maybe I'll learn some more. And, and so that was my kind of path into McKinsey and it's, uh, just, you know, wanting a bit of what those guys had and yeah. <laughs> getting a bit of the discipline. And it really did pay off. I mean, I think I learned so much in my first two years at McKinsey. Um, that really boosted my confidence as well because I did feel like I, I was very confident in the Army by the time I got out. And then I was I just completely lost it. You know, you get into that, the crucible of Harvard Business School and yeah. <laughs> just realize – Everyone else has done brilliant things and they're so much more relevant to your future than the, yeah. the things you've been doing. And so it was quite humbling, you know, and very difficult. Uh, and so then to build up your confidence to again. To kind of start at square yeah, one exactly. again. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, talk us through Harvard Business School a little bit and uh, yeah, the, the experience there and so on. I think it's, it's one of the things that we in the UK – really need to look at more as I kind of like further business education because it is a real kind of rite of passage mm. you know obviously you attended one of the elite schools um for it but the whole MBA route is something that is much more common in the United States and you know we have a couple of leading business schools here but not as many as perhaps we should and it's something the government and to be fair Rishi Sunak is doing a lot around the help to growth schemes that they've introduced to help train people because you know there's this Slight notion in the UK of, you know, you can't learn entrepreneurship, yeah. etc. Um, but yeah, to talk us through what it was like studying out on the East Coast. And, you know, you talk about it being a crucible. Take us inside the crucible. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really, it was really intense. Um, obviously, because everyone goes there and everyone has been at the top of their game in, in whatever, you know, field they were in. Um, we had doctors, we had, you know, entrepreneurs that had made, you know, loads of money. And everyone was very polished. <laughs> and I showed up with my terrible army haircut and like some of the clothes I was wearing. <laughs> I just think like, oh. But everyone looked, you know, so much more polished than me. And so it was quite intimidating. And it, it's very socially intimidating. You know, the, I think the most difficult mm. aspect of it was the social aspect of it. Um, you know, the networking and this feeling like, you know, you are uh, one of many <laughs> um, and so I, I, and I just didn't have the confidence, you know, I guess it was, it was incredibly difficult for me um, to start. You know, I didn't have a background in business. So my background was, uh, you know, I was running warehouses <laughs> for the army, but my background was engineering. And so even the language, as I said, was, yeah. was quite uh, intimidating for me. But to, to be fair, a lot of people were going through that at the time. And, and often I think with, with um, HBS, it, you know, you don't even notice that other people are going through it because everyone puts on such a brave face. And then, you know, it's only after the fact that you realize how how many different people were struggling there and how, you know, the friendships that you've developed there are actually quite strong because people were going through this kind of similar shared experience. Um, I, I don't know if it's, you know, I think the challenge is business school was perfect for me. I was making a transition from one you know, completely different industry, you know, the military to, um, to business. And so for me, it was really important that I went there and I had a bit of confidence. I learned the language. I, I learned the basics. But I think for, for certain people, you know, I think that the challenge in the U.S. is there were plenty of people that had learned classics of business and economics, had studied economics and then gone and worked at Goldman or something. You know, did they really need to go to an MBA? 
because there's a huge amount of opportunity cost that's wrapped up in that. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge is I think trying to not make it the step that you have to perform in order to continue on with your career, but make it available and high quality enough so that you can attract people who maybe are from more diverse backgrounds into uh, enabling kind of business and, uh, and you know, entrepreneurship, as you say. Um, but I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily feel like it's a silver bullet either. I think it's just one of many different things that you can, that you offer people. Um, but yeah, again, I think it, it, it allowed me to get into McKinsey. I, I don't think I would have gotten to McKinsey straight out of uh, yeah. the army. So, you know, you're in that machine and they're very good at getting you jobs and, and, you know, it's a whole, um, I'd say, yeah, machine basically set up to do that. So we touched on earlier the kind of creator economy mm-hmm. and the explosion in that. And, of course, you know, a very real example of that is, you know, the podcast we've we've created here. We have now taken on a producer and a researcher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not necessarily what I thought I'd be doing post Downing Street. And it's not necessarily <laughs> the jobs that I thought, you know, that we'd be creating. But it's amazing to kind of see that and the kind of explosion in that. Can you talk us a bit more about the kind of audio book space and, and the job creation that you're seeing there? Because you touched on narrators and um, a, a bit earlier as well. So it'd be, we'd be fascinated to learn about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting, you know, especially during COVID times, how actors were kind of parlaying themselves into narrator roles and, and how the, the value of that um you know, as an additional outlet for really talented actors, you know, and I think the narrators that we have on the platform are absolutely brilliant. You know, the other things I think you talked a little bit about, you know, sound engineers and mixing and, you know, producers, you know, these are all kind of incredibly important roles that, you know, we, I was at a company called Deluxe where we did this for, for film and TV and it's all really quite similar um, in terms of the, the capabilities that, that are required. But also on ours, it's it's also, of course, much more around development, right? Because we're a mobile app. And so, you know, the, the languages we've built in, we've built in Flutter. We're working in Google Cloud Platform. So people who understand these types of uh, environments and these um, languages are quite valuable to us. And so that's, you know, we're, if we're building out any capability at the moment, it's in the development side. Um, because we, te- we tend to not produce our own content at the moment. We're taking content from the leading publishers, which just simplifies again. It's all about focus and simplification for us. So, so we're focusing on building this brilliant app and and putting all of the the and this content platform. And you know, we and, and honestly, my as I said, my co-founder is really literally among the best in the world at digital media tech. So he worked his way up from broadcast engineer to director of production technology at ITV. And so, you know, he was literally writing the code that was taking them from analog to digital and then transforming the organization around it. And so he's built this, you know, honestly, industry beating platform. Um, you know, we can publish titles within four hours. And, you know, whereas the standard was like three weeks. And so, you know, when That's you can. Incredible. It's really incredible. And, and again, when you can bring the power of technology to a problem, you, you just can drive real efficiencies and. You can also improve the quality of, of you know, the output um, and making sure that, like, the metadata is right and making sure that the, you know, the narrators are being properly mentioned in the synopsis and, you know, all these things we, we think we're bringing to the table, which is kind of different. And then, you know, we're, we're also trying to acquire customers. So we've got digital marketing capability that we're building. We're working with PR so that we're 
you know, uh, people can find out about us from yeah. alternative channels. Um, and then, you know, we actually have a, a guy that does our publishing engagement for us. His name is George. He's a publishing industry veteran, and he's been absolutely so powerful for us in terms of our content strategy and getting access to publishers and and trying to get them to, you know, agree to all of this innovation that we're asking them to, to do and helping us develop a proposition that makes it easier for them to say yes to us. And, and he's been brilliant at that. As well. I'm, I'm working out the leverage and, and why they should be supporting it as well, which as we talked about is exactly, yeah. it's not, not that easy. Not, not been <laughs> easier points. Um, yeah. And yeah, so talk, I mean, you've got those, you know, you say four jobs. Um, what do you, A, what are you looking for in those kind of first things? Because you are probably, you are um, a startup earlier in their journey much more so than any of the guests so it'd be fascinating to hear how you're building out that that team initially and then um also post that you know once you've done the um fundraise and you're looking to raise around half a million you know what what are you going to be looking to kind of spend that on and, and hire in that area yeah so i think one of the one of the best lessons i learned i was at whitbread for a while and one of the coolest things i learned from whitbread was we hire for attitude, not for qualifications. And I thought it was a really interesting um, shift that obviously probably was not easy for them to make, but this was particularly in the Premier and brand. And it just really did allow them to, you know, find these people that were going to be incredibly friendly and incredibly um, helpful to their guests. And for me, it's the same thing. And, and I think we find this in, our, you know, developers, you know, we're less uh, concerned with exactly which coding environment or language that you code in and much more interested in your ability to learn new languages, right? And so your ability to adapt to, well, this isn't exactly what you're used to. Can you adapt and actually, and, and this whole kind of concept of learning mindset, which I think is a really big, it's a big thing in education at the moment. And it really does matter because somebody comes in and can see the potential in something, uh, it, it makes such a difference to the team. You know, you're, you want somebody that comes and doesn't suck the, the capacity of the team, but is really adding to it and adding yeah. more than they are, you know, just on their own. So they're coming up with new ideas and maybe challenging me to be better or challenging Mark to be better. And that, that's just really powerful. And, and it's so rare. It's not easy to find. But that's, I think, that's the big thing that we hire for is, is attitude. And you've committed to growing in Cornwall as well and that i'd love to hear about that because one of the things i used to love in downing street was regional growth and there's a lot of focus on london and all of that and there's lots of great stories uh, happening in london um and actually there's a lot across the uk as well but you know some of them kind of hide the light under a bushel a little bit um talk to us about cornwall and why you're building the business out there yeah, well, my co-founder's based out there. He's been out there for 25 years. He, um, again, he started as a, a broadcast engineer in the Southwest and uh, one of the ITV franchises. And, and you know, just for us, it felt like a, a way in which we could give back. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm obviously London-based, but, you know, there are plenty of companies that are London-based. If we have this opportunity to invest somewhere else, why don't we do it? You know, and I think he spent his, his, the majority of his career on a, on a train on a Monday home on a Friday, you know, living in London and, yeah. and, you know, just to be able to, to create more jobs in a place so that fewer people have to do that. Right. So f more people can enjoy actually living and working and making a living out there. 
And I think that's that's kind of what we're all about as a as a company. And I really like the seaside. I'm from Boston originally, yeah. <laughs> so I like the perk of you know having the ability to be down there and to and to be present. And um, and we're not there yet. We're really still quite remote. Um, yeah. Obviously, because of COVID, but you know we we, we are committed to the region. We're, we work with uh, subcontractors out there. You know, people who um, who are based in Cornwall definitely get uh, get uh, more time from us uh, because that we really are we really are trying to to support the local economy. Yeah, why would you not want to grow a business in Cornwall? Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. That's the, um, completely, um, I completely agree, and can definitely see the the, the benefits to it all. And finally, going into our um, quick round, I know that asking a uh, audiobook company their favorite book is going to be a real challenge. So, I mean, I'll give you a couple of like different ways of, of doing it. You can give us your favorite audiobook and uh, your favorite written book and just books that have inspired you along the way. It'd be great to hear. Cool. Yeah. So, the first, one of the most formative books for me was actually a physical book. Um, and I was. I was given it when I was graduating from West Point. It was called The Challenge of Command by Roger Nye. And in it, maybe that's the formation of my, you know, affection for books. I wasn't a great listener when I was in high school. I, I didn't really get into reading until I was in the Army and, like, quite bored on deployment in Bosnia, actually. Yeah. Um, but this, the, the, one of the key messages that I took away from that book was, um, is the importance of building your own reading program and um, setting out for yourself a, a professional reading program. And I, I just thought it was really interesting as a as a young army officer to get that message because and I, you know I'm not a I'm not a keen kind of history listener yeah. uh, or I certainly wasn't at the time and certainly not military history. Um but I could understand the value of learning from, you know, the mistakes of the past or you know the the victories of the past and and so I've applied that I think into my daily life and and it was again really quite formative to me in terms of really accelerating my reading capacity and, and my interest in reading. Um, and I'd say you know I think factfulness as I mentioned already is one of those books that sort of helped me think about what was wrong with audiobooks uh, and you know the idea of bringing to life pictures and images together in one in one book that really would be so much more immersive and so much more engaging for people so so I'd say that would be somewhere on my list as well it's like if I hadn't listened to that I'm not yeah. sure I would have had that kind of um, light bulb moment uh, and then I guess the, the other one that was maybe I was so happy to have on the platform <laughs> was Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez mm. um, and it was just I'd never read anything like it yeah. and so I became a bit of a girl fan. It's <laughs> an incredible um, book, isn't it's, it? It's like, really powerful. So, uh, and I was—it was one of those moments, like you know, it's like my hero on on my app now, and that, I just think that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, no, that is that I mean, is. Uh, I I bought it my mother-in-law actually for a Christmas present. So did one. I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's a very very striking book, and has had a lot more resonance since I've had a daughter as well. <laughs> If you could go back in time to 24 hours in, in history, when and where would you um, choose? It's interesting. I mean, I think in some ways, I'm not sure I'd like to go back in history because, you know, I don't think women were treated particularly well yeah. <laughs> historically. But if I had to choose, I would say Ada Lovelace, like going to see Ada Lovelace and her, you know, original computer. And yeah. that would be, I think that would be quite cool. Yeah, that would be... Um... 
that'd be pretty special. Her picture hangs in the uh, in the Downing Street pillared room, um, which is always just a useful reminder of the role that British women have played in technology and so on. Um, You have been pitching a lot. Uh, lots of interesting places. You keep popping up on my various social feeds. Uh, you know, you've been at Albright and a few other places. Um, could you pass the mic to an, another entrepreneur in the way that uh, Salima did to you that you found quite impressive on your journey so far? Um, Sophie Edelman has been a really powerful in- investor to us as well. As, and she's a startup founder as well. She's starting a company called The Garden. Um, I have been trying to persuade Sophie to come on, by the way. Okay, so I'll, put, that, I'll like, try to put a word in. Exactly, so. if you could. That would be. <laughs> and then Nikki Glumis, who is starting a kind of um, cross-border credit company. Okay. And, and she's really successful, and she's she's also one of our investors, and she's just amazing. Uh, and then Andrea Berkowitz is doing Vera Health, which is a menopause app, okay. and um, trying to help people get through menopause through in their own way, which yeah. I think is really powerful and very... Uh, you know, timely. It just feels like very on trend at the moment. Well, the whole women health tech fertility space is massive. Uh, it's so interesting because Octopus, the you know partners on this podcast, have done a big report into it, and it like it's such a yeah. You fifty percent li- of the population completely underserved by exactly. You link that with Caroline's book as well. Exactly. Like it's, exactly, it's a yeah. huge like you know. Yeah, yeah. Abs- I like yeah it's market a, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. So like, yeah, total yeah. addressable market. And then, can I give my one big shout out? Of course, somebody who I think you should have on, and I don't know if you know her, but Sophie Rochester from Yodemo, which is a platform for makers and tr- you know trying to encourage uh, people to try out new crafts and, and learn new uh, skills. And it's a beautiful site. Um, I love what she's doing. She's a beautiful person. She. She connected me with George, who's the she. She comes from the publishing world, actually, so she's made this like big career transition as well, and um, it's just awesome what she's what she's doing. So uh, awesome. a huge shout out to Sophie. Absolutely. Well, we will definitely uh, check those people out, and if, of course, if you fancy joining some of the investors that um, Kelly has just mentioned there, you can check out the zigzag, spelt with an X crowdfunding campaign on Cedars, although the disclaimer about investment advice <laughs> still stands from the start, just to re-emphasize it. Um, but it, it is an incredible company, what you're what you're trying to do. And you are right kind of at the outset of it. And the whole show is about trying to support um, British entrepreneurs and how you can kind of make that happen as well. And, you know, you are almost almost one of us 15 years here <laughs> thank now. You, thank um, you. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, it's been great to kind of take this from Salima, from KBox, Global's recommendation. It's been fantastic to have you on and hear about your your such wide and varied career. It's been a it's been really really interesting. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you for listening to this episode in the third series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Word of mouth is everything in the audio world. So if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and send us to a friend. You can find us at Jimmy's Jobs on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co for our episode archive, blog posts, and more. If you are a new listener, do look through our previous episodes. We've interviewed entrepreneurs disrupting industries from fintech to hospitality to modern engineering. So whatever sector you're interested in, there'll be something for you there. If 
you'd like to get in touch, please email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. Thanks to our producer, Leo Danchak, and thanks to George de Cleland for the artwork.